welcome back for another episode here at Crest Talk. We're your hosts, Jamie Kim, Chloe Lee, and Jamie Freitag. At Crest, we believe everyone deserves support. The Crest app provides personalized support that helps you stress less and accomplish more. If you are new, welcome. We're so glad you're here. We just wanted to reassure you that your hosts are no longer in the recording studio and we're all in our separate homes recording this over an audio call. So today we're back with another episode about Lenox Hill, specifically episodes three and four, and we look forward to diving in. We're just going to go over not all, but most of what happens, and we'll talk about our thoughts and discuss a lot of the things that pop up. So this episode opens up, episode three, with Dr. Langer working out. You can see the time that he wakes up. It's not even 5.30 in the morning, and he starts his day by doing some type of, it to me, it looks like CrossFit, but... It just definitely seemed like an intense workout. And kind of my thoughts about that was like, I wonder if doctors are more fit than the rest of the population because of all the stuff that they see and all the increased um, incidence of diseases with obviously like obesity and like heart disease. I don't know. To me, that truly shows that there's like no excuse for blocking out time for fitness or any type of self-care because he made it a priority for himself. Um, I think it also like increases his mindfulness throughout the day, like I don't know, exercise just does something to you like that for the rest of the day. So that was really cool to watch him do that. Right. And he gets a little bit into, I guess, the more business side of things that he has to deal with. He says, I didn't grow up saying I wanted to be a chairman. The day to day is a real challenge for me. We've talked about this before. Just struggling medicine by itself is hard, especially if you have family and, you know, just your personal life as a human being, but also having to be in charge of the department in a hospital and being concerned about growth and whatnot. And he even says, the way it's set up is sometimes you're competing more with the guy down the hallway instead of the guy from another hospital, which is pretty ironic, but at the same time, really understandable. And you could really see what he struggles with just from that sentence. So I thought it was really eye-opening because we not only see a fraction of his life as a surgeon, but we also see a fraction of his life as a leader and someone who's super important for the future of the department in the hospital. Yeah, Dr. Langer definitely emphasizes teamwork. His job as a chairman is to basically like shepherd others to work together with one goal to help and treat the patients. And he was talking about how if you don't have collaborations and if you don't have great teamwork, and if people aren't driven to help each other, um, the help, like everything breaks down. And I remember he was also saying that this is why there are a lot of issues with the healthcare system. And there are just way too many selfish doctors who want to do things because simply because they want to. And they have selfish reasons behind it. And um, I completely agree with that. I feel like Dr. Langer really understands what it means to prioritize patients over their own needs. Yeah, that really stood out to me. And a quote from Dr. Langer was, we have to get away from, every case is for me. We have to get something out of seeing our partners grow. We're still in undergrad, technically, um, and I can even see that now. Like, we're literally not even competing against each other, but it's still, like, I feel like always in the back of our heads, like, oh, no, I have to be the smartest. I have to beat this one out, beat that one out. But in reality, that mindset kind of makes no sense. But in terms of Dr. Langer, like he does have the clinical side where obviously teamwork is so important in, for the patient's sake. But then he also has the kind of business side where, you know, he goes into that conference room and like managerial wise, he's trying to get more resources for the neurosurgery unit and, you know, trying to build it up and build it up. But 
the people that he has to deal with are kind of reserved about their resources in like New York City and, you know, trying to beat out the next hospital, trying to get, you know, more OR space or the better equipment. And we kind of see that attitude when he's talking to Dr. Jill Kalman, who is the executive director of Lenox Hill. He's trying to get more equipment out of her and more staff for his unit, but she kind of comes back at him with like this quote um, that was kind of chilling to me, honestly, but someone said no for a reason. And you obviously can see like the pain in his eyes when she says that. For me, kind of, it didn't really make sense because it sounded like they are so productive, bringing in a lot of money for Lenox Hill. So I don't know necessarily why everyone is so against giving them resources because from what they show on the documentary that they're doing pretty well in spite of having limited OR and limited resources. So I don't know. I didn't really understand that. Right. And I was really surprised when um, Jill said that there's only one OR in that department, I guess. And that was so surprising because when Dr. Langer was making his argument to expand his department, um, he mentioned that there was a 175% increase in terms of surgery from when they first opened. And I was like, wow, they must need way more than just one room to operate in, in order to continuously grow their number of surgeries. And just the fact that she didn't really understand the importance of that was kind of shocking for me. Right. It's like you would think that with the hard data and the actual numbers that show the amount of growth that they've been trying to administer to, that that would be convincing enough. But it does show, you know, there are people that have final say. And honestly, it's such a big controversy these days because a lot of people that have the final say are not even physicians or involved with healthcare, which is, again, something that we're very passionate about. And we talked about this before. So it it was really disheartening to see. I mean, because you hear about it, you talk about it, you discuss it with your peers. But to see him actually be face to face with an executive director and hear her say, well, someone said no for some reason. Like, that was crazy to me. Definitely. And kind of switching gears a little bit to um, Dr. Little Richardson, she opens up her kind of little segment with making a woman push before she was ready. Um, She brought another doc in that looks, you know, kind of a little bit like her senior. She had an evaluation and everything went well for her own baby, but the test came back positive for um, a birth defect called Noonan syndrome. It's rare and um, the baby ends up with some cardiac defects, deafness, learning deficits kind of some physical abnormalities along with that. For me, that was just so, so, so sad because she's an OBGYN resident and her whole life is centered around delivering babies. You know, we kind of talked about this um, in the last Lennox Hill episode and she's delivered countless healthy healthy babies and the first child she ever ends up having is born with an extremely rare um, genetic condition. So But the way she deals with it and the way she wants to push through with the pregnancy and obviously not terminate it, but how optimistic she still is for the baby. um, I'm really looking forward to, you know, maybe it's not as bad as the doctors are saying or, you know, obviously she's going to love the child no matter what. But it's just it's just hard for me to see healthy baby born after healthy baby. And ultimately, you know, she has to deal with this uphill battle. Right. And just to talk about our other lovely physician who is also pregnant, she's actually um, in labor now. It's a scene. Her husband is next to her. He's actually studying. I believe he's still in medical school. So that must be really tough. And for her, her parents come in and it's great, but they end up 
um, telling her that she's going to need a C-section. I guess, you know, they waited and waited and waited, tried to toughen it out, but at the end of the day, they needed to do what was best for her and her child. So it was a baby boy, which was great. And it was just, it was a great moment to see the C-section happen successfully and that she was able to kiss her baby. And it was really nice. Um, When the baby was born and she was able to like hold her baby, she had this big smile on her face and the mother just forgot about all the pain that she's been through um, because of that joy that comes afterwards. And I'm sure all mothers say this, but I never actually got to witness that in person. Well, not in person, but through a documentary or I've never seen that before. Yeah, that was that was really cool to see. Right. And then the episode kind of switches back to Mitzi, who we know, again, if you need a refresher, she's from Tennessee. She's the woman who had a brain tumor for 10 years because no other doctor wanted to touch it. It was it's really risky. It's obviously an extremely dangerous procedure to try to take it out because, you know, some of her essential arteries just literally run through the tumor. We know from the last episode that Dr. Langer did perform surgery, one of the first parts of it. But unfortunately, at night, she suffered from a stroke, which was heartbreaking. When I saw that, my, my mouth dropped. Like, I was not expecting that. So you could even see her. Now she has a hard time with speech. She can't find the words that she needs to say. It's very similar to in our Crest Rex episode, we talked about Loche because she also suffered from a stroke. She had a lot of difficulty, dysphagia, aphasia. How did you guys feel about that? Yeah, I think it was definitely um, in line with my beautiful broken brain in the sense that the whole like language um, part of her brain was affected. And to think, you know, what we said last episode was that they didn't even necessarily need to do this surgery. And, you know, they kept saying like, you know, while she was being operated, oh, as long as she doesn't stroke, as long as she doesn't stroke, she's not going to stroke, she's not going to stroke. And then, you know, ultimately she did have a stroke. And then it's just so sad because before she went into the surgery, she was obviously completely coherent and no physical deficits at all. And then they pan the camera after the surgery to her recovering from the stroke. And she's completely, completely changed, which is really, really sad for me to see. Yeah, I remember like she couldn't even recall the president of the United States. She like she knew what it was, but she just couldn't get the words out. But the doctors were so encouraging to her. They were telling her that she's going to get better, that progress is going to be steady, that she had people who supported her. And I can tell even with her husband, he felt very comforted. And something that I've noticed the past couple of um, episodes was how affectionate the doctors were with their patients in terms of physical touch. And I know physical touch isn't everyone's love language, but the way uh, the doctors were so careful and gentle with their patients was really, it really stood out to me. Even when they were like marking the patient's skin with notes or putting their hands on their face when they wake up from the surgery or like grabbing their hands, I just felt like it showed the patients that the doctors really saw them as family, as people that he really did care about. Oh, that actually also reminds me, my sister, she had a surgery at Northwell Hospital too, like many years ago because she had a cyst and she was in the pediatric department. Like back then, my parents couldn't speak the language, but the doctors were so, so kind. Um, They would like hug my mom, like they would like brush my sister's hair, like the surgeon himself. And I remember like my mom saying like, wow, they don't even understand what we're saying, but they're so like loving towards my daughter. 
And I don't know, I just, I just got reminded of that. Wow, that's so nice to hear that. I'm so glad you're able to, you know, like recall that memory because I feel like even in the moment, it's hard to appreciate those little things because it's so stressful. Like your loved one just went through surgery and whatnot. But I guess like looking back and even seeing the segment of the episode, I did notice that as well. You know, they're not afraid to touch their patients. They're not afraid to get close. And you don't even know how they feel about it. You know, but they just do it because it, it's the right thing and it's a really nice thing to do. Right. And for the other neurosurgery patient, Chris, who has a, the brain tumor, um, he actually, it was revealed to us that he got married in the hospital before his surgery, um, which was super touching and like so sweet. Um, I can't imagine like going through that before, you know, you're about to, you know, have this huge surgery um, underwent with. But it was so sad because basically how they explained it was he got his life together. He got a kid, got a house, and then his brain cancer recurred. But um, they kind of flipped it a little bit and said that he looks like he's making progress with the clinical trial. Overall, Brookvar, like his main surgeon, definitely seems up with the whole biology of his tumor and the you know most recent technology. So Brookvar starts talking about how difficult um, it is for the blood-brain barrier to get medication in there for the patients. But it's, it was sounding like, at least to me, that he, obviously not in layman's terms, but he was really hopeful that the um, medication that he had Chris on was going to be beneficial. And that's really super important when you have someone like so young and just, you know, starting his life and then having this huge, you know, burden to deal with. And speaking of clinical trials and patients in clinical trials, uh, the documentary goes back to Augie. If you don't remember, she is the MIPD lieutenant who received, she was like the eighth person in the country to receive that specific treatment for a glioblastoma. But an update with her is that every time she got the treatment, she would get this pounding headache exactly where the tumor was. So that was just an update with her in terms of how she's progressing. Dr. Bokvar is obviously super invested. And again, his passion for finding new treatments, pushing the edges of what science can do and discovering new treatments, it arises again. But it's really good to see, you know, how they communicate and hopefully things work out for her. And hopefully this clinical trial is, is a success. And you could, you know, say so much about the whole clinical aspect, but going back to Dr. Langer, he was um, about to operate and what he announces to everyone was human being here, everyone, which I think we talked about a little bit last episode that I really love how he humanizes the patient and, you know, they're not just a piece of meat that they're like trying to operate on and trying to, you know, work on, (laughs) trying to figure out all the screws and put them back in the right place. But this is a human being here, everyone. Like he just needed to say that to get everyone on the same page. Like, you know, what was crazy was as the surgery goes on, he was literally um, missing equipment. I think he was turning to the tech or like um, to the nurse that was helping him and, you know, asked for a certain tool and they were like oh no we don't have one today or something which was crazy because here he was doing brain surgery and he literally didn't have the right tools and this was kind of funny because this scene was right after he had kind of like it looked like a board meeting with other neurosurgeons talking about their obviously their growing pains again that was like a huge theme without this episode what was funny was um he kind of had a little bit of a disagreement with um mitch who we are officially, I guess, introduced to in this episode, who is also a neurosurgeon and, you know, was working on him, was working on the same surgery case as Dr. Langer. <laughs> After that argument, uh, Dr. Langer is caught saying like, oh, I love Mitch. I love working with him. Yeah. So what did you guys think about that? Yeah, that's something I noticed too. I was like, when they were working so well together during the operation, 
I was like, wait, weren't you guys just like fighting like a few minutes ago during like a really high tense meeting that was extremely important for them to discuss. But that's something that I also really, really admire. You know, they put everything aside. They put their emotions aside and their opinions aside when they are dealing with a human being. And that's something, honestly, a lot of us cannot do. We all know people who make things personal, who bring their personal life into business, into their work, which really is not okay. And especially if your occupation has to do with someone else's life and if you're operating on someone open on the table, I just gain so much more respect because they know that they had a huge disagreement about a very important aspect of the hospital. But when it comes down to operating and having the same goal, of trying to help someone heal and help someone recover, they just all put it aside. And I'm sure we all know people who don't even, you know, they're not involved with saving people's lives and they can't even do that. So I can imagine that it's it's a skill that honestly, like sad to say, not everyone has, but it was great to see that they have the type of relationship where they know time and place. I think both of them understood that they didn't mean to hurt each other. Like they weren't trying to go at each other with an intent to hurt each other but it was more because they were frustrated and they knew that it was for the patients and that's honestly all that mattered to them both parties equally and like when I saw this like panning out um, this was a type of relationship that's really hard to come by but it works so well in this hospital and I think it contributes to one of the reasons why Lenox Hill is so successful. Definitely kind of what made it so successful is kind of portrayed in the next scene where, um, you know, we see Dr. Little Richardson talk about the wall of white men who she passes every single day, who like, you know, started the hospital. And she says that her life experiences affect the quality of care that she gives to her patients. But at the same time, she says she's also aware of her privilege and, you know, how her parents um, got her through undergrad. But ultimately, um, she kind of was upset, it sounded like, by the lack of diversity Um, when walking through that hallway or, you know, whatever it really was, uh, just like the white men sitting in a black and white picture, like kind of like staring at you through through, um, while you're walking down. And, you know, kind of for her to speak about that, I think that was, you know, one of the first few times she kind of educated us about her experience. um, And I really like that part. When Dr. Little was talking about how she was very fortunate and she's aware of her privilege, of how she was able to get through med school. I kind of also thought about how there are many people, um, even in my life, who couldn't afford to go to med school or who didn't have that support to go through med school. And it made me wonder if it if it holds a lot more people back from doing what they want to do. Because, you know, like if you go to med school, you have to spend all your time studying. And it's very difficult, almost impossible to have a part-time job. And you need a lot of money for supplies and equipments. Yeah, so I just like thought about how that would affect other people. I also understood her, how grateful she was to go through med school with her parents supporting her. And kind of speaking about her experiences and what she's been through can help her with her patients. Um, You see her in the next scene supporting a woman without an epidural. And um, it looks like it's kind of in the early hours of the morning because the um, pregnant woman's husband or boyfriend is asleep. And Dr. Little goes over and is like, good morning, like, wake up. Uh, The patient definitely appreciated that Dr. Little woke him up and emphasized the importance of his presence during the birth. And, you know, as doulas, me and Jamie were, um, you know, always taught to get the dad involved, you know, help invite the dad to come and help because it's it's a weird space for them because they 
just don't want to assume um, that they should help or that they shouldn't help. I, I get it. They feel like out of their element, but at the same time, like, come on, like you're asleep. <laughs> so she, Dr. Little handled that very, very, very well. And um, the patient who is also a black woman, um, I think she was really grateful that Dr. Little um, Richardson is also black and, you know, can understand what she's going through more than, you know, maybe a white provider could. Yeah. She, um, she talked about her calling as to specialize with working with people of color. And it's not to say that people have to work with people of their same race, but Dr. Little says that it's easier to understand one another without much explanation. Um, I completely agreed with what she said because though you don't need to be the same race to understand, when like when Dr. Little as a black woman worked with another black woman, there were things that they didn't really have to explain for each other to get. They just kind of clicked really well. And I think this works with this also works with other races too. Like there are just certain things that you don't have to explain for them to understand. And it just happens more nat- quote unquote naturally with more comfort. Definitely. And kind of switching, but not, I really like the cutscenes of the city because as all this stuff is happening, you know, this is right after Dr. Little was helping in a birth and, you know, a couple neurosurgeries went on. They cut to the city, which is always moving, always like hustling and bustling. And it kind of makes you put things into perspective. Like all this stuff is happening in one small part of one moderately sized hospital in the city. And the rest of the city just keeps going. And, you know, there are probably a million stories like theirs, but Unfortunately, but also fortunately, we get to see like four very different situations, four different, very different doctors. And it just makes you makes you think about all the hospitals, all the cities and all the world as like, I don't know, that's what I that's what I got from those little cutscenes. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that's so true. And I think in like a previous episode, Dr. Bookfart, he was literally just staring out of the window and he was like, it's crazy how such a busy city looks so still. And that's true. It's not like when you look at the buildings, they're like moving about. So it just shows that there's so much going on. It's so hectic. And actually towards the end of this episode, um, just to give you more background on Dr. Mitch Levine, who we just introduced a little before, uh, he's you know, one of the partners, he's really good friends with Dr. Bookfar and Dr. Langer. He's the director of spine surgery. At the end of this episode, he actually finds out that he has cancer. He's looking at the scans in front of him. He's telling only at this moment Bookfar and Langer. And Dr. Bookfar says that it's humbling and cancer definitely does not discriminate. So um, you could see this little scene where they're standing around Dr. Mitch and they're just staring at the screen, looking at the scans, and they're kind of like discussing like what they would do, kind of like a game plan. Obviously, it hits home for them. He, I know they call him like family. We'll talk about that more in later with the other episodes. But just to hear that their fellow partner who has worked with them for a long time and has shared a lot of the same goals, and they've been through a lot together, especially with building this department, to hear that he has cancer. I don't even know how they, they handled it so well. And it was extremely professional. And yeah, I love seeing that. And, you know, kind of also not not as as dire as Mitch's situation. They they switched to Macri, um, who is in the hospital. She was laboring, laboring, laboring. And um, ultimately, they decided that she needed a C-section. It was kind of funny. Well, you know, it was funny to me because I wasn't going through it. But um, they're going to need to test the fire alarm of the building during the C-section. But ultimately, it was it was a great birth, um, you know, birth is birth, whether, you know, C-section, vaginal, you know, whatever. And she seemed really happy. Again, they had to take the baby away from her for, you know, obviously like medical reasons, but ultimately he looked 
very healthy and happy and I'm just overall really happy for her. And on the flip side, Mitch was just diagnosed with pretty severe cancer. Um, So that just goes to show you kind of as soon as one happy thing happens in one part of the hospital, another, you know, devastating thing could happen in another part. Right. And that kind of closes off episode three. It's kind of like bittersweet. We have bad news, Dr. Mitch, but then beautiful birth with Dr. Macri. So yeah, it's, it's a roller coaster of emotions. And now we'll actually switch on over to episode four. So this episode starts out with a former heroin addict. His name is Gary, and he's currently drug-free and living in an adult recovery community. So he's doing really well. And Dr. Langer explains that he has an arteriovenous malformation on his brain, but because of, you know, his past, it can there can be some complications that arise because Gary can be resistant to some of the narcotic medications that are usually given during surgery and after surgery you also don't want to give him narcotics so you also have to take that into account and Dr. Langer actually says something that really struck me and he says a lot of docs won't take care of these people there's an attitude towards someone who is an addict which it's terrible but it's a truth like I cannot stress how much, you know, we see this discrimination as soon as you see someone's past and you hear where they've been, what they're doing and what they're struggling with, it can very well impact you as a human being as well. Um, Even people who don't practice healthcare, you see that attitude shift, you see the judgment. Dr. Langer, the way that he sees it, he says they're just normal people that got themselves in trouble. And he says, you know, every human deserves to be cared for So just to see that, it was just so refreshing. It was like a breath of fresh air to hear someone who has so much merit and he's so capable for him to say that. I think it was kind of comforting to me in a way that there are physicians out there who don't discriminate and they're able to really like, it's just, it's harder than you think. You know, we judge people every single day in our daily lives. No, definitely. And kind of what added to, you know, my feelings towards this was Langer actually mentioned that they're trying to manage his pain after his literal brain surgery without opioids. You know, he's like, oh, you can take Tylenol and, you know, we'll, we'll help you out. But <laughs> I can't, like, that's just so sad. And, but I, I get it. You know, you can't um, introduce like an opioid to someone that's a former addict, but it's just so sad to see that because now he's going to have to struggle completely harder than the normal patient that, you know, just because of his background, which that was, that was sad for me to see because obviously he's completely over his addiction and he's doing better in this home. And then for for him to go through brain surgery without opioids, I, I can't imagine that. Yeah, I completely agree. I feel like this also reminds me of what we talked about in the past episodes about how sometimes the doctors can become jaded. If somebody who was under the influence came in, they're obviously not themselves, so they might create the scene, they might you know, demand things, they can even get violent. And just the fact that um, Dr. Langer, knowing that, like I'm sure he has witnessed these things happen over and over again, still understands, still Um, has that open mindset to know that they are just normal people who have their own sets of conflicts and troubles to work through was really so humbling. Right. And speaking of amazing physicians, we go back to Dr. Mitch Levine, who, again, is the director of spine surgery. And he, in episode three, announced that he had cancer. And what happened was he explains that in 2014, he had an examination done and his doctors missed this small growth of cancer in the MRI. He said, like, he looks back at the scan, it was like this little dot that was missed. And he was even saying, like, 
he said to one of his doctors, he was like, oh, my parotid gland hurts. And the doctor's just like, he just felt it. And he was like, oh, well, it's working fine. And that just made me so angry. Like, I'm not even the one going through it, but I could just, I just felt so frustrated. And honestly, I don't know how he's feeling, but at least with how he was presenting himself, he just said, the only thing I can control is what I do. So for him to be faced literally with something so life-threatening that you know could have been prevented in the past, and it was just because of a mistake, and when you complain to a doctor, he waves off your complaint and doesn't really look into it, that really like lit a fire in me. No, definitely. But at the same time, his attitude towards it is amazing. You know, he is not sounding very anxious at all. He kind of wants to take it day by day. And he says, the only thing I can control is what I do. This is coming so soon after his diagnosis. Um, You know, everything that he's saying at this point in the show is within 48 hours of um, when he was told that, you know, okay, you have this condition and this is your prognosis and everything. Um, And he kind of said that as a neurosurgeon, he knows a little bit too much about what the disease is, you know, what, what it's going to look like, the treatments, you know, the progression of the disease. And that's something that the average person doesn't know. And they might, you know, reserve maybe some more hope that he's not necessarily feeling, um, which is a horrible, (laughs) a horrible thing um, to think about. But overall, he has like a great attitude towards it. Obviously, he's practical, but at the same time, he just wants to live day by day and have a a lot of tomorrows is what he said. I think it even scares him because he at one point had to do these procedures and follow through with these um, treatments with his own patients. But now he's the one who has to receive the treatments and needs to follow all the steps. Of course, I don't know what he's feeling, but I can only guess that he's, you know, he's feeling vulnerable and lonely and even scared. Oh, I think at one point of the episode, he said that he was lonely and scared and that he didn't even want the surgery because it was towards his face and like the upper part of his body. He would lose facial functions and the pain and he can live a few more years with the surgery, but he mentioned that for him, it wasn't worth it. Do you guys remember that part? Um, Like, what would you do if you were in that situation where you needed to get, if you got the surgery, you could live a few more years, but you would be under this intense pain, so many medication and therapy, or would you just not do it and live for, I don't know, a couple more months or, or it could be a couple years, but kind of take that gamble. Um, That's such a hard question. But to me, the way that they were talking was he's gonna have like a huge portion of like his head and neck almost like retracted. And I don't know necessarily. And he's like, Oh, you know, I know what I'll look like after the surgery, because he's probably done it for other patients. And if he, the expert feels like it's just too much for him to handle, then I don't know, it's it's quality versus quantity at that point. And for me, um, if, if it truly were me in that situation, I think I would want to choose quality. Right. Again, I don't think we can truly know what decision we'll make unless we're in that position. But, you know, while we're, I guess, thinking about it, I'm with Jamie on that with quality. He, like even Dr. Langer, he talks about later on in the episode, but he's like, he's going to look completely different. It's going to be completely like numb. And even um, Dr. Mitchell was talking about it. He goes, they have to remove my neck and this whole part of his face. So it's scary to know that you can you will look completely different and you won't be able to function as well as you have been. And especially for him too, like he knows he's successful. He knows he's good at what he's doing. So it's it definitely is a huge gamble that 
I have no idea. I feel like you just really have to face it to see how you feel. And it would also, it's a lot of debate and trying to see what the future would look like. It's something that it's like the it's like a very horrible aspect of having to deal with cancer and high risk high risk surgeries like that. And as um, this whole thing is unfolding, he's waiting for um, his PET scan um, results to come back to see if the disease had metastasized to any place else other than like his head and neck area. You know, they're injecting him with the you know radioactive dye, and you know, Doctor Langer comes and visits him. His NP comes and visits him. The NP has like a a pretty unique, um, I guess, insight into it because her name is Carrie Ann Tomlinson and she works with Dr. Levine and she says you can work seven days a week together, but even on the weekend, if there's an issue with a patient and she has to talk to him, like he doesn't hesitate and he sounds like a really, really good supervising doc and their relationship seems pretty, pretty tight. And it was, it was very sad to hear her talk about this whole situation because yeah it's a shock for him you know he found out 48 hours ago but all of his colleagues and family members also found out 48 hours ago but the support he's receiving you know even before he gets a scan is is immense and you could definitely see that through, throughout everyone that knows right and when they're interviewing Carrie Ann she talks about the relationship and she was like sometimes it's like I have my father at work and I'm like wow like how good must he have you know taken care of you comforted you and you could just tell how big of an impact he has on the rest of his team and how he's so loved. And she even starts to tear up because obviously he's someone so close to her heart. And she's like, you know, you don't wish that on anybody. And she's like, I don't want him to suffer. And you have to think about this too. She's an MP. She has a job. And imagine just like knowing that your really close friend, you know, he's a part of your team. You guys were closely every single day. She also has to just move on and do her job and it can't bleed into her work or her care with other patients. Um, obviously, this is extremely, extremely tough for Dr. Mitch, but because he has such a huge support system where everyone truly does care about him, they do take on that burden with him as well. So honestly, just props to everyone because you can just tell that they're thinking to themselves, you know, like they're all in this together and they're going to be there for him no matter what. Yeah, um, even Dr. Langer, he was with him every step of the way. And um, when Dr. Mitch decided that he didn't want the surgery, Dr. Langer was saying how he doesn't know what to tell him. Like if someone tells you that they don't want the surgery and they just want to take that risk of living a couple more months or a couple of years, like what do you tell him? And especially also because they're friends, it's harder. And Dr. Langer obviously really cares about Dr. Mitch and he can't even force him or say anything to convince him because um, the decision is always up to the patient, like always. And Dr. Bookfar was saying like, oh, do I push it? Do I push it? And no, you can't. You have to give that decision up to the family and the patient. And all they can do now is, you know, support him and be there for him as much as they can and respect that decision. Definitely. You know, the whole, the whole hospital supporting him is, is amazing, but you kind of have to think like, oh, you know, did he want his privacy? Did he want all of this politics that maybe it could exist with the physicians? Like, oh, don't worry, Mitch, I'll save your life. Oh no, don't worry, Mitch, I'll save your life. Like, you know, everyone has these amazing intentions, but ultimately I feel like, and this just might be me, but their egos are still kind of there. Like, as Bookfar said, like, do I push it? Do I push it? Do I push it? Like, he was talking about um, another patient when he said that. But at the same time, it's like, oh, do you push it for your friend? Do you push it for your friend? Do you push it for your friend? Which is, is a hard, a hard decision no matter what. But the fact that they're all neurosurgeons can probably, you know, maybe get a little intense for Mitch at some point. Langer visits Mitch while he's prepping for the PET scan. And 
Dr. Langer said something that definitely opened up my eyes. He said, if you do everything here, you know, like within Lenox Hill Hospital, it's good because many people, like we love you and we want to take care of you. And there's a lot of value in that because you're treated differently. But then you'll also have to deal with lack of privacy and some of the politics that exist with physicians. It like sucks because it's like, you know, he's the director of spine surgery. He's on this neurosurgery department and he has cancer. And if he gets treated here, then what? Everyone knows. And then what do they discuss? Like the future head of spine surgery, you know, like all that stuff. It's so crazy that that's something that they also have to deal with on top of like, they can't even be a quote unquote normal patient. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it's just because it's so intertwined. Like, I feel like their work life and their personal life is so homogenous and you can't really draw the line between that. Yeah, definitely. That's something I didn't think about was like, everyone knows your business. And at the same time, you know, when talking about, you know, if his, if his diagnosis ends up being terminal and sooner than maybe a lot of people thought, like, what do you do? You, you discuss your replacement while you're going through this whole, you know, traumatic treatment sequence. Um, I didn't even think about that, but that's definitely something that that's going to go on within the um, hospital. And then to be part of that, I don't know how that's going to, how that's going to work out. Right. And we'll actually touch more upon Dr. Mitch and his results and what he decides to do later on in the episode, because that gets brought up later on. But to switch a little bit, we go back to Dr. Little Richardson, who is our OBGYN. Remember at this point, she she knows that her child has Noonan syndrome, so they're getting another checkup. And she actually says that Kevin, her husband, has read every single publication on this disease, which is crazy. But at the same time, it's probably not crazy for them. It's their child. You want to be educated. You want to be prepared. You want to know every single detail about this disease and, you know, maybe what you can do as parents. I guess, like, a little bit of hope, though, they say that um, they feel like it's a blessing because for their child, it's the milder form of the disease, so it doesn't really have a severe expression as the traditional Noonan's. So I guess something that they're, that's something that they're also clinging on to, and they also say, you know, they're blessed to be able to keep the child because they have the financial means to take care of whatever complications arise, whatever extra care or time is needed. So I feel like they're overall handling this extremely well, especially as first-time parents. Another thing that I noticed about Dr. Little was that sometimes she looks kind of cold. Not like she's cold, but like her expressions are kind of cold and jaded. And it's not because she's sick of her job, but she's getting so used to the routine of it all. And I completely understand when you work in the ER, when you work in the OBGYN, like you see the same things and you can become jaded and people are very hard to deal with. Another thing that really stuck out to me was when she was delivering the babies after she found out the news of her own baby having the Noonan's disease. I don't know, there was something in her eyes that kind of stood out to me. She almost looked like she was envious. Like she was like, wow, like this is such a healthy baby. Like I'm so happy. And almost as if she wanted her baby to look like that too. Um, I mean, everybody wants their baby to be healthy, but there was a little bit of like pain and struggle there because she knew that she had no control of her situation and she wishes that her baby was just as healthy as the ones that are born literally right in front of her. Yeah. And I think that's something that we all talked about in research for this episode was that there was a moment, it was kind of almost right after um, she had one of her own checkups and she, you know, runs back to the um, delivery room and, you know, is standing there kind of with this like glazed look over her face that I, I 
didn't pick up on, you know, with her other deliveries. I think we all can unanimously agree that that's our thoughts from just seeing her. She didn't say anything, but we all kind of agree that that's what she was thinking. Mm-hmm. And as much support as we see Kevin giving Dr. Little, we see um, that same support with Mitzi, who um, was the woman that unfortunately suffered a stroke, and her significant other. Dr. Langer, um, her surgeon, actually talks about talks about this um, phenomenon. And basically, he says that it's that significant other that is the most important thing. And without that person by your side, it's just so much more difficult. You know, you see it all the time that the patients with families and with close loved ones around them, they seem to do better. Um, it's critical to their well-being more often than not. And you could see that Mitzi's husband is always by her side and that there's steady progress with her. And you could see, and it was so cute. Um, he's like, okay, what's this? And he holds up like the wallet and she's like money. And he's like, well, what holds the money? And she's like, wallet. <laughs> So, um, yeah, that was super cute. And it seems like he's like really invested in in getting her better and, you know, getting her back to pre-stroke abilities. And um, yeah, he's just super supportive and I love him. Yeah, that whole scene made me think about the previous scenes where the homeless people, the heroin addict came in and they were just fighting all of this by themselves. And I was like, wow, what a lonely battle that must be. Like with nobody encouraging them, nobody telling them that they can get through it. It must be so hard to keep going. Dr. Langer is so right when he says that patients with families do better. Patients who are struggling, they need that extra love, but it's hard to receive it when, you know, you have a bad reputation of the addiction and whatnot. Yeah, but Mitzi, she's definitely, there's a steady progress there and you can see how supportive and committed her husband is to her. Right, and speaking of support, we're going to go back to Dr. Mitch Levine, and you know, at this point, he was getting his PET scan, and it's so cute, like, the scene cuts to Carrie Ann, the NP, again, you know, she's the one who said, we work together seven days a week, he's like my father, you kind of just, like, see her hanging around and waiting, it's so nice to see, you see, like, in the hallway, she's like, are you done, are you ready, is he coming up, so that was really nice to see, and she even walks with him out of the room in which he was getting his scan and she is actually the one that tells us that from his neck down he's good that the disease hasn't spread and she's so happy i was happy when i was watching that um, imagine having to like know like oh yeah it spreads to the rest of your body like that would have been devastating so she said for now this is good news obviously he's going to have to deal with whatever's happening in his neck and head but this at least for today was some good news and something that also really touched me was you can tell, obviously, like, you know, she's hurting. It's such a, it's such a hard moment for her, too. But she's trying to be, like, just normal and talk to him. And Dr. Levine just goes, Carrie Ann, give me a hug. And she hugged, and he said, thank you. So that was also super nice to see. I love how sometimes, isn't it crazy how sometimes, like, the people who aren't actually going through it, like, they, you know, get a little bit more crazier. They're more frantic. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, hey, like, calm down. Give me a hug. Thank you. And you could see that he knows that. Yes, it's tough as hell for him, but he knows that his team loves him. And, you know, when you love someone, you care about someone, you can't help but also suffer next to them. So it was really nice to see. And kind of a funny um, aspect of like this whole, you know, results situation was um, Dr. Levine calls Dr. Langer and, you know, tells him the quote good news. And they're just kind of laughing and like cracking jokes. And I think Dr. Langer says, so in other words, you have no meds in your testicles. And like, it was just such a like a funny moment because, here he is, like, with severe cancer, you know, Mets or no Mets, they're still, like, cracking jokes and just being, like, super happy. 
you know, Langer ultimately says that he's amazed by his calmness and demeanor in dealing with this life-threatening thing. And they're all so, so supportive of him. And they say, you know, we're all going to have his back throughout this whole situation. And to be honest, he can't be in a better place at the same time. I know I talked, <laughs> I talked uh, some crap before about how they're probably all in his business, but when you have 10 neurosurgery friends, like, <laughs> and then you also have, you know, head and neck cancer, I feel like they do all have your back. Then the episode kind of pans to Dr. Bookfar, where he is going home on the lure, and he says that he takes one day a week to refuel the tank. He really showed me that you can still be productive while doing something that fuels you. And he, ba- he took a step, physical step away from the hospital and went to a whole new environment to take that downtime that he needed. His wife, Jody, talked about how they met fourth year of his med school and they had their first child during the residency and the last child he had his last child during the last year of his residency and he was like never around yeah like Jody had to carry a lot um what do you guys think about that like marrying someone and kind of knowing that 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 person isn't going to be there for their child most of the time because of their work but still kind of committing to it yeah, honestly, of course, Dr. Bookfar had to suffer through a whole lot to get his degree and become a physician, but it's the same thing for the wife, you know, his partner, because you're not just saying yes to marrying someone who's going to become a doctor, you're saying yes to literally like the 10 plus years or whatnot of studying school, residency, fellowship or whatnot. Like they also suffer as well because she said she had four kids under the age of five and a half and he was never home. That is so difficult. She was like, yeah, it was, she said it was crazy. How do you even deal with that? I don't know how I would go through it. So I think she is just as strong as Dr. Bookvar. And speaking of downtime, um, all of the physicians got together on the beach and um, they were going to Langer's house for an overnight retreat for their department, um, which was really nice. I don't know kind of a lot of offices that do that, but when you're looking at them and, you know, the camera zooms out, you know, you think like, what a wonderful, like super awesome team that it is. You know, obviously, you know, they're talking about when the patient has cancer. You're not only a colleague, but a family member, like a confidant. It's what you're on this earth for to have these kinds of relationships, you know, with your patients. Ultimately, when someone close to you gets sick, you know, especially in this type of setting, the support that you could just see on that beach was immense. And he says that the team that supports each other efficiently, um, it works so well and they're all focused on the same goal. But at the same time, it's revealed to us that not that not everyone on the beach knows yet about Dr. Levine's cancer. So it definitely adds, you know, a weird kind of aspect to the whole trip. Yeah, he gives a special shout out to the close people at the hospital and just acknowledges how lucky he feels to have people to talk to, people he trusts. And when they work together to know that they understand each other's struggles and relate with him. Um, that community is, again, so important, and these doctors are fortunate enough to have that. Just the fact that they're focused all on the same goal, they're so loving and caring to each other. Like when Dr. Brookfar tells Mitch that he's going to take this very personally and fix and try to treat him as much as he can was just like so amazing. Right, and it's actually in this retreat that Dr. Mitch says, actually up until this point, only Dr. Langer and Dr. Bokfar knew. So at this retreat, he was going to kind of break the news to the rest of the team, the three other physicians there. And he's like, what I don't want is a pity party. And that's understandable. Like, Who would want that, especially with what he's gone through and his profession? So mm-hmm. I definitely understood him on that. 
and when he's talking, he's like, he like had this whole spiel about that, about how he's just going to become a statistic and he doesn't want people to be like, oh, poor Mitch. But it was funny because at the end, he's like, the takeaway, today is a beautiful day. You can just tell he's just trying to live in the moment. They're at the beach. It's beautiful. Yeah, what, what Chloe was talking about before is like, it cuts to a scene where it's just Dr. Bookfar and Dr. Levine at a car and... Dr. Bokfar is just going on this whole, like, speech. He's like, listen, I'm taking this very personally. I know the biology of this thing. I was going to make a business out of this to help other people. And Mitch is, like, going in and out, like, yes, I trust you. He's like, wait, like, okay, uh, yes, thank you. And he's trying to, like, come in and, like, just kind of shut him up. He's like, yes, I know. And Dr. Bokfar, he just keeps going. And he's like, he's like, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll make it my business. And then... Dr. Levine's like, he just like shuts him up with a hug and he goes, I love you. Thank you. And even after the hug, Dr. Bofar still continues and he's like still trying to talk. Mm-hmm. And, and Dr. Mitch just like cuts in and he's like, I know, I know. Thank you. And I appreciate it. Then at night, they all go for a few drinks and uh, Dr. Mitch, you know, tells the rest of his crew and he lays it out like the whole truth. He says it's bad because it involves you know, my V3 and my facial nerves. And, you know, he was like, you know, the surgery, if they take out my whole salivary gland and they take out my V3, then he said, you know, I'm going to be completely numb. And he, and I quote, he says, this guy you're looking at now is not here anymore. So, you know, you could see their faces, obviously they're devastated and they know the risks, they know the complications because they're literally other fellow neurosurgeons working in the same department. They see this stuff. It was just so sad to see, but they also handled it so professionally. And he ends with, he says, I love you guys. You're my family. And you could really feel that. So, and the perfect ending, I feel like, was their selfie. I was like, wow, like, you know, surgeons take selfies too. Yeah, that was honestly, like, so touching. I know Jamie cried. I didn't cry. I teared up a little bit. Um, But I also remember Dr. Mitchell, Mitch, saying that um, he's, like calm and content about this cancer and the road that he's walking on because like he doesn't even want to fight it and he wants life to just naturally happen. It amazes me how focused he is in the present. Like right now he's surrounded by his work family. He's not too worried about the future. And I felt like that was the key to his content. And when he was walking to the beach, we're going to back backtrack a little bit when he was walking to the beach, he said, it's going to be a beautiful day. And that's the bottom line he's almost embracing it rather than struggling to escape, like struggling to survive, but kind of accepted the fact that this is what's going to happen and he's going to make the most out of it. Ending that day, ending that day with a selfie was honestly so real. Definitely, that was an awesome point to end the show with. There was a lot of themes throughout these two episodes, like support um, definitely from your family and friends, kind of the duality of the hospital and how, you know, in one part, something super happy and enjoyable could be happening. And then, you know, in another part, someone's getting, you know, a terminal diagnosis. This dove deeper into some of the physicians' personal lives, um, which was really interesting to see. And yeah, ultimately, we really recommend, um, you know, continuing the series um, with watching episodes three and four. And we will be back soon with another episode of the Lennox Hill series. Until then, be well, and we'll catch you guys next time on Crest Talk. Mm -hmm.